why is it that we stand while we read the Word of God together? And my answer is that simply that the Word of God is the expression. It is the Word of God. And then there is a respect, I think, that is deserved of the Word of God. And so we, we stand up in respect for God's Word as we read together. So reading from verse 27 all the way down to verse 38, it says this, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples And said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses loses, his life, life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Loving Father, this morning we give you thanks again for the Word of God. And Father, we pray right now as we open the Word together, we pray, O God, that your Spirit would come and move amongst us. Father, we pray that he would have freedom to convict us of sin to challenge us, Father, to rebuke us. Father, we pray also again that we would see Jesus, that our eyes would be focused on him. Father, we pray that you would put a hedge around this place and keep the thoughts of the world, other thoughts about our jobs, family, homes, all those things. Father, help us to put them all aside and focus solely on the Lord Jesus and see him. Father, we would glorify him now. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. In, the, uh, in your little folder there, there is inside of that a set of sermon notes, and you may want to pull them out because I'm going to refer to a couple things on the page here as we go through. And you can keep pace with where we are. If you want to take notes or you want to add in and fill in some blanks there, you can do that as we go through. In the passage what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. We know that he is walking with his disciples and he is questioning them and he's asking them about who the people say that he is. And then he asks them very specifically, but who do you say that I am? And what I want you to notice is there's a very interesting structure to the text and the things that Jesus is doing throughout the course of this passage. If you look it up, the middle part of your note sheet there, there's this funny thing where everything sort of keeps indenting and then works its way back out again. There is, in this passage, something called uh, a chiastic structure. Now you say, 
What's a chiastic structure, and do we really need to know? And the answer is, no, you don't really need to know, but it's kind of a neat thing, and it shows the point that Mark is trying to make in the passage. So I want you to follow along as I show you what works. In verse number 27, Jesus asks a question, who do the people say that I am? In verse 29, Jesus asks another question, but you, who do you say that I am? And then in verse 30, Jesus tells them or gives them a warning, don't tell anyone who I am and so on. And then in verse 31, Jesus begins to teach them the necessity of the cross. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And then in verse 32, Peter comes to Jesus, takes him aside, and rebukes him. So there's Peter's rebuke. And we can see in Peter's rebuke a very man-centered thinking. His idea is focused on man's interest, not God's. And Jesus turned around, and he sees the twelve... I'm thinking there might be a slight distance between them, and he sees a 12, and he in return rebukes Peter. And then in verse number 34, Jesus teaches them the necessity of discipleship. If anyone would come after me, he must, he drives that point of going again, he must deny himself and so on. And then in verse 35, he offers them a warning, gives them a warning. He who would save his life will lose it. That's a warning given to the disciples. And then in verse 36, he asks them a question again. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world, but he loses his soul? And then another question in verse 37, what is the value of a soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then he wraps it up, he summarizes it up with a great promise that those who are ashamed of him now, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And you say, what's the whole point of the little in and out thing? What it is, it's a literary device. For example, A-C-T-S spells what? Don't say acts. It spells prayer, right? A-C-T-S. Acclamation, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's a little literary device, an an acronym or acrostic. Acrostic, is that it? Acronym. Acronym. There you go. Whatever it is. It's a little device that we use to memorize to help us to pray. And what Mark is doing, he's using a first century uh, Middle Eastern literary device to show his reader what his point is. And his point is this. It hits the middle point of that thing. You notice I've darkened out Jesus' rebuke. Everything up to that point leads into what Jesus is going to say to Peter. And everything as it comes back out again, it's all mirror image. If you notice, there's question, question, warning, teaching, rebuke. Then rebuke, teaching, warning, question, question, right? It sort of works its way in and works its way out again. He's making a point. And what is his point? His point is this, that discipleship and the confession of Christ, they must be consistent. And what he's saying to Peter is this. Listen, Peter, you've got your ideas, you've got your interest, your thinking is set on man's way of thinking, The point Mark is trying to make, sorry, is discipleship is setting our minds on the interests of God. Don't forget that Mark's gospel is not just a gospel about who Jesus is as a suffering servant. It's also very much a gospel and a teaching for the first century church and us today about what discipleship really means. And I find it so interesting and so poignant that as soon as they make that confession, you are the Christ, immediately he begins to teach about both the cross and discipleship. 
And Jesus' point to Peter is, you've got your mind set on the things of man, not on the things of God. And that's kind of the point, the crux of the whole issue that he is developing for them. So why do we need to hear these messages? Uh, in case you're wondering, we're going to look at the point number one today and the other three points next week because we'll take all our time to look at the necessity of the cross of Christ for discipleship. Why do we need to hear these messages? Why did Mark include this teaching? Why did he structure from 8 and verse 27 all the way to 10, I think it's verse 24, why does he put so many mentions of the cross and discipleship? And why does he pack them all in there? The point is this. We live our lives with a problem in Christianity. We have developed a subtle acceptance of the idea that our confession of Christ does not necessarily have to match up with our life. You say, oh, I would never do that. Well, be careful. Go take a look in the mirror of God's word and see if you do that or not. I think the reality is every single one of us does that. Peter's just stood and made that great confession. We know from Matthew 16 that that confession, you are the Christ, was given to him by his father. That's a great moment. And not what? Five minutes later, he turns around and rebukes. He dares to tell off the Son of God. This will never happen to you. Takes him aside. Like somebody being in trouble with a school teacher approach and he rebukes Jesus. Listen, setting our minds on the interests of God will result in a life and a behavior and a practice that is a Christ-like life. We're going to see that as we get through in next week. Setting our minds on the interests of God will result in a Christ-like values that we have. The values that this world lives with, temporal physical, material, what's here and now in front of us, but the values of Christ are eternal values. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is showing them that the values of a disciple are eternal values. We need to hear this message, these messages. I need to hear this. I wrestled through this this week, and I found issues coming up in my own life. It's amazing how Satan can start accusing and suggesting, and you don't make it here, and you fail here, and you fail over there. I knew it's true. And I went back to the Scriptures again and again. I saw, you know what? My confession has to match my life. Peter's confession had to match his life. Discipleship and conversion has become a confession of faith without repentance. A confession of faith and belief without reformation of character. But discipleship and conversion, as Jesus is going to make the point to his disciples, is it involves a change of mindset. We go from the interests of man to the interests of God. It involves a change of behavior. We go from selfish to God-centered. It goes from self-first to God-first and others after that. It involves a change of values. We put aside those temporal values and we put it in place the eternal values. I love the acronym ALIVE, A-L-I-V-E. We had the kids thing that, that way. A-L-I-V stands for always living in view of eternity. And that's what we as Christians are called to do, is to live in view of eternity. The need of the teaching of this passage is to combat the inconsistency between belief and behavior that we see so often in our own lives and tragically in the lives of those around us. 
We need the teaching of Jesus on discipleship to understand the massively important connection between the cost of discipleship and the cross as well. So here's the outline for the next two weeks. One point today and three next week. Discipleship, number one, demands the cross of Christ. Number two, discipleship demands the mind of Christ. Number three, discipleship demands the behavior of Christ. Discipleship, fourthly, demands the values of Christ. So we're going to look just at one point today. Discipleship demands the cross of Christ. Notice in verse 31, he says, he began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Jesus is teaching them about the necessity, the absolute cruciality of his suffering. He must suffer. Remember the scene in the garden? Jesus goes in there with his disciples after they've broken bread in the upper room, and he leaves most of them, nine I think it is, or seven of them in one area, takes three of his closest friends with him. He goes a little further away. He leaves them a little distance away, and he goes in the very center of the garden. It's almost like this. It's kind of an enclosure. If you imagine the table as the very center, and there is Jesus on his knees and on his face before his Father. And what does he cry out? If there's another way, let this cup pass from me. And you get the almost unspoken answer from heaven. There is no other way. There's no other way. How are we going to accomplish the salvation of man? Is there some other way? Can we offer a high enough cash purchase price? There is no other way. Is there someone else? Maybe there's someone else that can take Jesus' place like Jesus has planned to take Barabbas' place. And the unspoken answer from heaven is the same. There is no other way. Well, I've looked up and I, I just, as I was, not looked up, as I was thinking and, and meditating on that idea of the fact that he must suffer, I came up with eight reasons why Jesus must suffer and, and pay the price. If you want a far more comprehensive resource, John Piper put out a little booklet. It's tiny. It's about yay big. It's 50 reasons that Jesus came to die. 50 reasons. And I want to look at eight I didn't use the book in, in putting this together, but that's a great resource for you uh, if you want to look further. By the way, all the way through this message, when we speak of the cross of Christ, I want us to understand very clearly we are not speaking about a hewn timber upright and crossbeam. When we speak of the cross, usually in theology and in Christology, in our hymnology, the cross as a reference refers to all that is involved in Jesus' suffering, his uh, rejection, his forsakenness, his physical pain, his emotional pain, all of the theologies wrapped up in that word. I love the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, Strictly speaking, the way it's written, it's theologically inaccurate because we don't cling to a wooden cross. We cling to Christ, right? But when we're talking about this this morning, discipleship demands the cross of Christ. I want you to understand that the word, the phrase cross of Christ wraps up everything that is incorporated and included in Jesus' suffering and Jesus' death. So here are eight reasons that I came up with why Jesus must suffer. Number one is the most obvious one. Almost all of us would get this one right away. Christ must suffer to purchase our salvation. There is no other way. He is the only one who is of infinite value enough that his death and his suffering is enough to pay the price for our sin. Nothing else could do it. 
All the millions and billions of gallons of blood of bulls and sheep and ghosts throughout roughly 2,000 years of history up until the point of cross could not atone for Adam's first sin. But the blood of Jesus is sufficient to purchase our salvation. Secondly, Christ must suffer to display God's love. And one of the tragedies I've heard repeated often in the preaching of the gospel is something like this. And you may have heard, like, heard this before. God loved you so much that this is what he did. He valued you so highly that he sent Jesus his most precious thing to suffer and die for you. That's borderline heresy. That's not what the gospel teaches. This is how God displayed his love. He gave his only begotten son. If you take the other view that God valued you so highly, he sent his most precious, not belonging, his precious person in his son to die for you, you massively distort the gospel and you make the gospel all about us. But the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. And the gospel displays the love of God, not just for us. It displays the love of God for his glory. It displays the love of God for his word, to honor and maintain his word. It shows the love of God to preserve his justice and also allow his grace to come pouring out. Thirdly, Christ must suffer and die to to display God's justice. We were looking at a a message on uh, Monday afternoon, I think it was, my dad and I, uh, Paul Washer preaching. He was talking about how is it that God who is just can justify the ungodly. The massive problem that the Bible presents that in order for us to be justified, God must justify the ungodly. But God is not a God of injustice. And the beautiful thing about the cross of Christ is the fact that Jesus met and satisfied all of the demands of God's justice. God's law was satisfied in the death of Christ. Christ must. There's no other way for God to display his justice properly and fully unless Jesus died on a cross. And Jesus gathered his disciples together and began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Fourthly, Jesus must suffer to display the glory of God triumphing over sin and death. It is the two, they say, two things you can never escape, death and taxes. I know lots of people who have escaped taxes in all kinds of creative ways, but I guarantee you not one single one of them has ever escaped death. And the glory of God on the cross isn't just of his love being displayed and his justice being met. The glory of God in the cross is that he triumphed over sin and death. The beautiful scene. We focus so much on the cross, and we should, but we often forget the resurrection. The beautiful thing is the resurrection declares and triumphs. You know what? God has won the fight. As a book by John Owen called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. So how death was done away with and forever dealt with. You and I no longer have to fear death. Why? Because the Son of Man must suffer many things. He suffered to glorify God in triumphing over sin and death. I've hinted the next one already. Christ must suffer and die to display the glory of God in resurrection from the dead. That's our hope, isn't it? If your hope is set in the the lottery coming in, or if your hope is set on getting a raise at work, or if your hope is set on anything like that, you're going to be disappointed over and over and over again. But our hope, 
No matter what they may do to us in this world, no matter what we may face in this life and in this world, our hope is in the fact that Jesus rose again and one day we will be raised with him. We will enjoy that resurrection and faith will give way to sight and we will see Jesus as he is. Christ must suffer and die so that God could be glorified in raising him from the dead. Sixthly, Christ must suffer and to die to display the nature and extent of obedience in two parts, his obedience and ours. You know, you and your mom and dad give you a job to do and they, you know, go in and do something. When I was a kid growing up, my parents here, I can, I can tell these stories now. When my, we were growing up, we had chores on Saturday morning. Who here has got chores for their kids on Saturday morning? Oh, you guys are missing out on fun. Uh, we had chores, and there was washing the cars, and there was mowing the lawn. And I like cars just fine. I think that dirt's a great protective barrier, and you can do all kinds of things with leaving dirt on your car. No, that's not true. But we had jobs to do. And I always got up extra early because I didn't mind obeying the command to go and mow the lawn because I didn't mind mowing the lawn. I enjoyed mowing the lawn, so I got out there quickly, and I mowed the lawn. It wasn't a difficult command to obey. But there are other commands that we are given to obey that are much, much more difficult. And all of us know something of that tension when we're told to do something. When mom tells you to do something and you know you have to obey, we know that inner tension between I don't want to do this and I know I have to obey. In the Russian household, you had to be careful because the Sipsum Bribut would come out and somebody would get a smacking if they did not obey. And obedience was difficult. I remember once getting in trouble with my dad and he looked at me and said, obedience is so hard, isn't it, son? And I was smarting from the, the whipping that I'd gotten. And yes, obedience was hard, especially when it was applied to my rear end. But you know what? I don't mean to make light of this. Christ must suffer and die to display the nature and extent of obedience. He learned obedience. What does the Bible say? By the things that he suffered. He didn't have to learn it because he didn't know it before. The idea there is he experienced, he knew what it was to obey to the fullest extent. He knew what it was to go to the absolute limits of obedience. He knew what it was to suffer obedience, even obedience that would require him being rejected and forsaken and despised and spat upon and all of the emotional physical pain that he endured. He did that. He suffered and died to show us the nature and the extent not only of his obedience, but ours. What does Christ call us to do as disciples? Live any way we like? Enjoy your best life now? No. Disciple who is one who is under discipline. The two words are totally connected. I wonder why it is in our modern Christianity that the idea of a disciple has been replaced by the term believer. You know what I think it is? I think we like the idea of believing. We like the idea of faith. That's a good idea. It's a great term. But I think we very much dislike the idea that we are disciples and we are called to obey. We have been saved and set free from sin. Not to live any way which we like or please or think about. We're being called and saved and set free from sin to live a life of obedience. And Jesus must suffer and die on a cross to display the nature and the extent of his obedience and ours. He also must suffer and die to display the way in which disciples must endure suffering. What does First Peter tell us? Look to Christ. 
He died as an example of those who suffer the righteous suffering ungodly things. Jesus was a righteous man, absolutely proven. No one could bring a charge against him. No one could find any fault. They couldn't get their witnesses to agree. Nobody could get anything against him. Only his own confession that he was the son of God in response to the high priest's question, that's why they crucified him. Even Pilate said, I can't find any fault. And he washed his hands. Jesus died to show us and display to us how disciples must endure suffering. We're going to look next week at the mindset of a disciple. That suffering is the pathway to glory. Number eight, the last one. Christ must suffer to display the glory of the grace of God. I confess, when I was putting my notes together, I went to seven and, and then moved on to something else. I came back at the end of my notes. I was reading through. I said, you know what, Nelson, you missed grace. You totally missed one of the main points of the gospel. Jesus died to show us that God is a gracious God. Everything about the cross says, you know what, in favor, unearned favor toward the sinner, I am taking care of your greatest problem. Jesus died to suffer and display, sorry, the glory of the grace of God. Listen, the life of discipleship cannot be understood outside of the cross. For all of us, for, for some reason, we have this idea, the cross purchased my salvation. I go beyond that and I live almost in not considering the cross. Why is it that we've lost sight of how important all of the suffering of the cross is, not just to purchase our salvation, but to live the whole Christian life? Discipleship demands the cross of Christ not only to purchase our salvation, but also to get through and live this life of discipleship. The cross is infinitely more than the nails and the spear and the scourge and the sword, all those things. The cross is so much more than our salvation's purchase price. The cross is the key to the life of the believer. So many questions that we raise about the life of the believer can only truly be answered by a deeper and deeper understanding of the cross. Hey, why do the godly suffer and the wicked prosper? The answer is found in the cross. Why is it that the way of faith and righteousness seems so difficult and the way of the wicked seems so seemingly easy? The answer is found in the cross. Even what Peter's doing in his understanding of Messiahship and asking Jesus or rebuking him for what he's saying, he is reflecting that understanding that the way should be easy, not hard. How do we understand that the way of the faith and righteousness is so difficult and the way of the wicked so seemingly easy? The answer is in the cross. Why is the way that leads to destruction so broad, so easy, and so wide? And yet the way that leads to life so narrow. Why does Jesus say there are so few who find it? And the answer is found in the cross. The key to living this Christian life, the living a life of discipleship, is found in the cross. By focusing and understanding, going deeper, our discipleship demands a deeper understanding of Christ's agony of his soul. Listen, I don't think Jesus was barely aware of the nails and the scourging that he endured. 
As he hung on the cross, I think the greatest thing that was in his mind, the thing that caused him the greatest agony and the greatest suffering was the fact that for the first time in all of existence, before time began, the relationship, the fellowship with his father was broken. You say, how do we get that? We understand broken friendships. It's nothing like that. We understand broken family relationships. It's nothing like that. It doesn't even come close to comparing. What, is, what did Daryl read in Isaiah 53? He shall see of the agony. I love the old King James. He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. It wasn't the blood. It was, the blood was important, obviously. It wasn't just the blood. It wasn't the nails that caused terrible pain in his arms and the collapsing of his chest muscles so he couldn't breathe. It wasn't the thirst. It wasn't the scourge that opened up his back like shattered shreds of meat. It wasn't the massive blood loss. It wasn't the exhaustion, the dehydration. It was that agony when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our discipleship demands a deeper understanding of the implications of his suffering and his death. It demands a deeper understanding of the theology of the cross and the atonement. I got my dad a book for Christmas called Revelations of the Cross by J.I. Packer. If you like reading something close to a dictionary, it's worth the read. I used it for one of my papers in, in the last semester. It's phenomenal. It goes into an understanding of the theology and the necessity of the atonement and all of what it means. It's beautiful. Listen, our discipleship demands a deeper understanding of the relationship, the fellowship between the Father and the Son that was internally intact but broken for those three of the darkest hours in all of human history. And even though we can understand something, that, a shadow of it, in broken family relationships, we'll never get the full extent of it. And I'm absolutely convinced with all my heart that the reason why God brought a great darkness over the whole land, that no man could see the face of the Savior as He endured those hours. Our discipleship demands a deeper understanding. Do you want to live a successful, godly Christian life? I think we all do, don't we? Don't we want to live to please the Lord? Paul said, I have one ambition, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to my Savior. Because one day I'm going to stand before Him, before that judgment throne, to receive the things, whether done good or bad, in the body. We all want to live that successful Christian life. And what did Paul say? I give up everything that makes me something, that I may know Him. And what? The power of His resurrection. He wanted to know what it was. To suffer those things. He, wanted to, he said, I fill up in my body that which is lacking of the sufferings of Christ. What's he mean? He means he, he allows himself to be suffering, to endure suffering, to display to all the world something of the sufferings of Christ. And we've gotten into a place in our Western modern Christianity that Christianity has been boiled down to, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven, everything else I do what I want. That is not Biblical Christianity, it is not the gospel. It is not discipleship the way that Jesus preached it and proclaimed it from Scripture, in Scripture. The life of discipleship demands the cross of Christ. Jesus taught them that he must suffer many things. How will we understand 
when we suffer many things, and I don't mean the ordinary sufferings of this life, sickness and death and incident. I mean sufferings that are directly connected to our testimony for Jesus Christ. How are we going to understand that? Unless we go back and we go deeper into the cross, we go deeper into understanding who Jesus is and deeper in understanding what he accomplished on the cross, we'll never understand suffering until we do that. Jesus taught them that he must be rejected by those that, have, that should have protected him. All those things put in place, the high priest, the guards, the, the temple officials, the Levites, they had a responsibility to protect Jesus, to look after his interests. To be, the high priest is supposed to be, if Jesus is just a man, his intercessor. He's supposed to be praying for him. And they're the ones that are betraying him, abandoning him, turning him over to the Romans. His friends departed and left. Everybody denied him. Peter in his denial. Judas in his betrayal. All of them fled away. How are we going to understand what it is to be rejected by those that are supposed to love and care for us? The day will come, brothers and sisters, when in this world, in this Australia, when Christians will be hated and rejected and illegal and so on. It's written on the wall. It's coming. How are we going to deal with that? How are we going to understand and deal with what it means to be rejected for our faith? The answer is by going deeper into the cross to see what it means. To try and get our heads and our minds and our hearts around the sufferings of Christ. Discipleship demands the cross of Christ. We will only understand it by going to the cross to go deeper, to get a better understanding. When we look, if you like, you stand at the foot of the cross and you look up and you see Jesus. And the darkness is so great over the land that you can't make out a form. But out of that darkness, you hear a shifting on the cross as Jesus pushes down on the nails in his hands and his feet and shouts out, my God, my God. Why have you, we could use the word rejected or forsaken. They're both applicable. There's something wrong with our Christianity when the world finds us acceptable and pleasing and welcomes us in. Our Christianity, our faith in Christ ought to be so offensive that the world hates us. What did Jesus say? He said, if the world hates me, it will hate you. How are we going to understand it? How will we truly understand it when we see loved ones, fellow believers, killed and martyred for their faith in Christ? Some of us have seen some of those pictures about a year and a half ago now in the Middle East where Christians are being martyred, heads cut off, crucified, shot, horrible tortures happening. The only way that we're going to understand it is if we go to the cross and there we see the author of life hanging lifeless and dead on a cross. The cross is necessary for the purchase of our salvation. The cross is necessary for the glorification of God. The cross is also necessary for us to live the life of discipleship. Discipleship demands the cross. He must suffer. Not might, not should, not maybe. He must suffer. And he says to them, if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross. By the way, we'll get this next week, but I'll give you a little preview. That phrase, we think of it in terms of living a living death for the sake of God. In their terminology, that it meant exactly what it said. It meant 
you must deny yourself and be willing to go to your execution for me. And he was taking Peter's problem and he was connecting Peter's confession of Christ. He was connecting Peter's or God's interest and their discipleship and suffering also. Discipleship demands the cross of Christ. Discipleship begins at the cross of Christ. Discipleship is marched under the banner of the cross. And discipleship is lived in light of the cross. Listen, discipleship is all about Christ. So you're sitting here this morning and we're just about done. I want to ask you a question. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Before you answer... Let's read again. He summoned the crowd. This is verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, verse 34, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Let me ask you again. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ because being a disciple, you must deny yourself. Being a disciple, you must take up your cross. Being a disciple, you must follow Jesus Christ. By implication, or by, sorry, by, verse, by direct statement in verse 35, you being a disciple means that you lose your life for his sake and the gospels. And you might say that would apply in a life and death situation. No, it means giving up, losing your life here and now. We were reading earlier outside before we prayed that, that great passage in Philippians 2 but the issue of humility. And what struck me was that Jesus lived to glorify his Father, and he was willing to humble himself, put aside all of his glory, to come this earth and walk as a man and die as a common criminal hanging on a cross. Discipleship is about giving up, seeking this world, giving up, seeking for self, giving up, trying to gain everything for myself. Discipleship is a case of humility. Let me ask you again. Are you a follower? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to pay the price? Associated with that, are you willing to endure the shame that's associated with Jesus' name? And it's easy to sit in a church and nod. But you know what? If we're not willing to face these things, the day will come when we will stand or maybe be forced on the ground with our hands tied behind our back and a butcher knife put under our throat and ask the question, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Knowing the answer means a loss of life. Where are you at this morning? This is a brand new day and a brand new year. Talk about New Year's resolutions. If I can twist that around a bit, What is your state before God? Have you in your heart before the living God resolved to live your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Don't answer too quick. Take those verses. Go home. 
find a dark corner or a corner you can read, a, a silent corner, a quiet corner, and open your Bible and ask yourself those questions before the face of God. Am I willing to deny myself? That must happen. Am I willing to take up the cross, to die to sin, to die to self, to die to this world? Am I willing to follow where Jesus leaves, wherever he leads? We're going to sing one more song in a minute. I'll read the words for you. We, we were looking for songs that would fit this passage, and Heather found this. The song is called, can you put the words up, Brady, for me, the last song? The words you may not recognize, but the tune you almost certainly will. The tune is Danny Boy, the old kind of Irish folk song. It says, What grace is mine that he who dwells in endless light called through the night to find my distant soul and from his scars poured mercy that would plead for me that I might live and in his name be known. So I will go wherever he is calling me I lose my life to find my life in him. That's right out of the text. I give my all to gain the hope that never dies. I bow my heart to take up my cross and follow him. What grace is mine to know his breath alive in me. Beneath his wings my wakened soul may soar. All fear can flee for death's dark night is overcome. My Savior lives and reigns. Forevermore, I bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow him. Where are you at this morning? If you were to stand before the gates of heaven, and you were asked, on what basis should I let you in? What would your answer be? I can't speak for you. But I can speak for myself and say this. My one answer is that Jesus died, and he died for me. I have one hope. I have one, one thing, and that's Jesus' blood was shed for me. I trust him, and I trust him alone. Everything else can burn up. That's all that's left. Discipleship is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand, and we're going to pray, and then we'll sing one last song. Loving Father, we give you thanks again this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I admit and I confess there are so many times that my own heart wants a crossless discipleship. But Father, I give you thanks. And Father, we would say that our desire is to follow him to go where he leads. Father, we give you thanks for the value of the Lord Jesus Christ, the infinite value of the soul, the infinite value of the person of Christ. Father, we give you thanks for his great cry on the cross, it is finished, and the great cry from heaven, it's enough. Father, we thank you for the cross. Father, we pray that we would, as a people who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, would be willing to deny ourselves, to take up that cross, to follow Jesus wherever he leads.
Father, the words he spoke to Peter on the beach in that last morning in the book of John come back to mind. A day will come when they will stretch out your hands and lead you where you do not want to go. And he spoke of the death that Peter would suffer. Father, I plead with you for all of us as a church that we would shake off the definition of Christianity that our Western culture has developed, that we would go back to the Scriptures and we would see Jesus. We would see the cross. We would see the call to come and follow me means more than just getting out of hell. It means following him in obedience wherever he goes. Father, we give you thanks for our time, and we ask you for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.